is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma. This is Father Don Wolf. I'm pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. We're entering the last week of the liturgical year, which makes it the Feast of Christ the King. This is a curious feast day for most of us since we don't really believe in kings. For us, royalty is as obsolete as a royal typewriter. It may have been okay in its time and place, but that time has passed. In the modern world, this sense of what it means to be a king has diminished until we regard it as something to be offensive. It's as offensive as it is obsolete. No one would get anywhere claiming they were our king. Or as Richard John Newhouse put it once in one of his essays, we wouldn't be surprised to find the heir to the royal house of the Romanovs working at a shoe store in Berkeley. He is the heir. He's the next in line to the throne of the Russians, and his birthright is intricately tied up with the promise of Russian royalty. But all of that's completely irrelevant. There is no place for a king or a czar in the psyche of the people of Russia. You could make the case that they would have been infinitely better off in the 20th century if only they had not gotten rid of their royalty, but that's part of a larger question about the concourse of this last century, the bloodiest in history so far. We still marvel at the trappings of royalty when it comes to the coronation of the new king of England. I know a number of people who stayed up late to watch the festivities and all of the ceremony broadcast live from England when King Charles was crowned. But to be honest, most of what we know about kings and aristocracy come from movies and TV programs with hardly a moment's interruption of actual history. Kingship is definitely old-fashioned which makes it all the more unusual that we honor Jesus as Christ, the king of the universe. If kings are obsolete, and they have been growing more so in the last hundred years, why has the feast day wriggled its way onto the calendar? And when we do celebrate it, as we will, what are we trying to get at? Those are good questions. It is perhaps startling to acknowledge that kings were still at the apex of the countries as the First World War began in 1914. In the second decade of the 20th century, after the invention of commercial cars, radio, airplanes, transatlantic telegraphs, oil-powered steel construction battleships, psychotherapy, and anesthesia, there were kings sitting on the thrones of some of the most powerful nations of the world. The king in England, the kaiser in Germany, the czar in Russia, the emperor in Austria, and the sultan in Turkey not to mention the kings of Denmark, Norway, Bulgaria, Greece, and the royal house of Italy. They were all in positions of power and authority. In the cases of uh, Germany and Russia, they had power over the armed forces as well as the administration of the local government. Most of the people in their respective countries could hardly imagine how a country might function without royalty. And in a few years, all of it was gone. One of the casualties of the First World War was monarchy. The Kaiser went into exile after he abdicated his throne. The Tsar abdicated and was arrested and then murdered by the Bolsheviks. The Emperor of Austria lost his place when his empire disappeared, and the same happened to the Sultan. The others held on but were relegated to ceremonial roles at best. England, whose monarch had the least power, was the only country in which kingly power was undiminished. 
It's not an accomplished to subtract zero from zero, after all. Kingship, as an organizing principle of society, mostly disappeared from around the globe. Along with the disappearing power of monarchy, Pope Pius XI announced the feast day of Christ the King in 1926. To say the timing seemed curious was an understatement. He seemed to be wildly out of touch. It's hard for us as Americans to measure how this addition to the calendar of the Catholic Church went over with the citizens of the country who just lost their kings. In the U.S., the effect was probably much the same as when we now tune in to watch coronations. It seemed a charming curiosity. The greatest impact has been sociological, and that's connected to the actual timing, because this announcement was made at a time in which the church in the U.S. was growing at a fast clip and new parishes were being founded in the newly growing cities all over the country. Many of the parishes named Christ the King were founded in the places that grew into wealth and prosperity at the time. Go to cities all over the country and all over the different regions and strata of the country, and if you find a parish named Christ the King, it was likely founded at this time, and it still embodies this prosperity of that epoch that continues up to today. The Feast of Christ the King came at a curious moment in the history of the U.S., but we're still left trying to understand what it's supposed to mean for us. How are we to celebrate the intuition of royalty as part of the life of the faith? And are we to import the vague notion of kingship into our understanding of Jesus? Just what is this all about in the long run? It's actually much more engaging than you think. That's because kings have been around about as long as we know anything about human society. All the way back along the tree of human gathering, there have been the understanding of someone who sits at the apex of society, who's thought of as the embodiment of the whole people. That person isn't just a symbol of the nation or the race of people, but the individual whose presence is synonymous with the identity of the people. The origins of kingship are contested and unclear. Anthropologically, we understand it to be ancient, and we find it from the hallways of Versailles to the jungles of New Guinea. It doesn't always look the same, and the expectations of the people with regard to their, their king can change, but the existence of royalty seems to be a constant. This is typified by the charges that were leveled against rebels to the medieval kingdom of Britain who were charged with violation of the king's body as they sought to overthrow the royal family and take control of the political process there. The rebels were not just guilty of trying to take the reins of government and run things for themselves or to enact their agenda. These alternative leaders weren't just those who wanted to see their point of view honored or their claim to the throne recognized. They were guilty of a crime against the body of the king, since they were acting against the reign of this particular person and thus were acting against the king's actual body. And the nation, in this understanding, is the body of the king. At least it was so in the understanding of the people of the time. The royals were not simply those people who had somehow found their way to the top of the political pyramid. By winning battles or by being born into the right family, an individual person found himself to be king, yes, but being king was something much larger than a political agenda. The king and his family were the ones who made the collection of the people in the nation operate. As the king went, so went the people. And the order of the king's life was at the apex of the order in the kingdom as a whole. It's true, everyone may have known the eldest son of the king was an idiot who couldn't be trusted to mount a horse or paint a house, 
But at least everyone knew that when the king died and his eldest son inherited the throne, the order of the kingdom would be preserved. Being king was to have the order of the place flow out from you and to have the need for order flow up to you. The king was the capstone that kept the overarching order and structure in place. In the legends about King Arthur, the kingdom is floundering because the king has been away. The winters are long, the growing season is short, the harvests flag, and the people are are impoverished because of the embodiment of good order is absent. When the rightful king reappears, he's able to conquer the false king and reestablish the rightful rule in the kingdom. And when this happens, the snow fields, uh, the fields flower, the snow melts, and all is springtime. Kings are important in the understanding of what makes for good society. And while we don't have this experience directly, we do know what it points to, because everyone understands that when our leaders embody good order and act with true justice, everyone in the organization responds to it. Whether the person in charge is the manager, the CEO, or a parent in the family, when he or she is attentive to what the organization needs and acts for the good of everyone in the organization, we all have a sense of well-being and confidence in our place and time. Things are right, and we know it starts at the top. And if we analyze our sense of goodness in our organization, whether it's business, in a parish, or a family, we can see that the goodness we experience is something larger than us, and it points all the way to the top. While we don't call anyone your majesty, we know this brief glimpse of integrity has a faint image of kingship in it. We also know when things are structured so that they are oriented toward goodness and right, It allows us to be unaware of the struggles and energy necessary to make for good order. That sounds paradoxical, but it's part of the gift of rightness. For example, when I was in grade school, we sat down to eat eat lunch every day in the hallway of the school. At the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, the tables and chairs uh, that we sat at were gone. The hallways were clear so that we could go from classroom to chapel to the playground with no obstruction and no impediments. But for lunch, they were all there, set up, ready to accommodate us. As a child, I paid no more attention to the appearance and disappearance of the dozen tables and 150 chairs than I did to the recipe for oatmeal cookies. They were just there, all part of my ordered world. Now that I'm an adult and I know what it takes to make things happen, even even in a place as simple as a grade school, I know things like that are not automatic and they're not easy. It takes planning and commitment and authority to make sure everything is in place and ready to go when it's needed. Not only that, I also know that if I had noticed it, if sitting at a table or finding a seat was something that was not available, if it hadn't been invisible to me, it would have been because good order had broken down or that goodness was in abeyance. When the king is gone, everything in life becomes different. Often everything becomes worse. When the king is present, we don't even think about what the king's presence is for. Of course, our connection to this reality is short-term and always temporary. Managers and principals and presidents come and go. Nobody is hired on for a lifetime of authority and position. We expect everyone to come and go. But in those places where we have a structure of authority beyond one person or one term, we know the position conveys order as much as the individual does. That's why when we hear that the Pope has died, for example, we know the papacy will continue, and so order in the church will continue. 
The office conveys the goodness and order and the power of authority, not just the individual who happens to occupy the office at this moment. And because this authority is larger than the person, the promise of the office survives the person. This is also the gift of kingship. The king is more than his majesty. The king becomes all those who've ever been king and whoever will be. It's not an accident that when King Charles was crowned, he was robed in an ermine cope and weighed down with a huge crown. We've spent a lifetime seeing photos of Prince Charles in his polo boots and his elegant three-piece suits. So it's startling to see him at Westminster Abbey wearing a crown and carrying a mace seated on a throne. In fact, the more we see him in such a pose, the more he doesn't look like himself. He looks like just about any other king. And it's just this reality that everybody is invited to celebrate. Charles became the king of England, and when he did, he became something more than merely Charles, the son of Elizabeth and Philip. He became part of the lineage of order and goodness of the people of Great Britain. The king is the one who embodies the kingship of the people. It's odd to think, but King Charles is more, than king, is more king than Charles now. All the things we know about Charles the Prince— his busted marriage, his choice of partners, his political positions, and all the things that we read about in the newspapers, they become irrelevant when he becomes king. At least they begin to diminish. Charles the King is part of the lineage of the kings of England, not just the Prince of Wales, born in 1948, who happened upon the scene at the death of the longest reigning monarch in British history. Kingship is more than personal. Not only is it more than personal, it passes through the person of Charles and into the people of Britain. Everyone in the country is identified with the king. He is the king for all of them. His reign and his royalty are part of their identity, their history, and their sovereignty as a people. They are literally a part of him in the sense of his royalty. So when Pope Pius When he called for the Feast of Christ the King, he wanted to capitalize on this understanding of royalty. As he watched the modern world begin to fragment into the political and economic fiefdoms it has become, he wanted some way to begin to talk about integrating Catholic life into the thinking and practice of his people. He wanted to invigorate the appreciation of Christ as the capstone, the necessary part for the whole society, for the whole structure of our society. If Jesus is King, then how we live in the world will begin to reflect the gift of Christ everywhere. That was a major preoccupation for him. We've now become so used to things falling apart and not holding together, it's it's hard for us to appreciate what the Pope was talking about. But it's real, and it's a part of every aspect of life, not just the practice of the faith or the dogmas of religion. Let me give you a couple of examples. When the movie The Passion of the Christ was being shown in theaters around the country, a group of interviewers went around to the showings and asked people coming out of the theater what it meant to say that Jesus died for our sins. Since so many of those who made an effort to go and see the movie were serious believers and went to church, that was a good way to see what people thought of their religion. But that was just the beginning because the interviewers weren't really interested in the average person. What they really wanted to do was they asked the ministers who were coming out of the movie that same question. Now, it is a complicated question with all kinds of nuance and history. It would be something like asking the average person what the phrase due process ought to mean in our understanding of the law. But what they found out was that the leaders, the ones who were responsible for directing their people, the ministers, had a hard time answering the question coherently. 
This became such a troubling aspect of the religious scenery. An entire program was founded at Princeton in order to evaluate and then to understand what the leaders of churches understood and taught about this dogma, Christ died for our sins. In our modern world, the teaching of Christianity has broken into a hundred pieces and it seems like no one can put it back together. And of course, there's the issue of transgenderism, in which no one in the modern world seems to be able to define what a woman or a man is in a way which is comprehensive enough to satisfy the concerns of the age. Or as Douglas Murray said in an interview concerning the recent abominable behavior of Hamas, well, he said, they do seem to know what a woman is. The most basic and essential element of the created graces of the human person has now been dissolved in the acid of controversy and insubstantiality of our age until a great portion of society professes a child who believes in Santa Claus and who would be prevented from receiving an aspirin from a school nurse without parental permission should be given powerful drugs to alter his or her body's functioning and to hide that fact from the parents. Pope Pius wanted everyone invigorated by the promise that Christ is king in our world. This means every part of the world is part of the reign of Christ. We are the people of his sovereignty, and the sum of our lives is bound up with the presence and the promise of Christ. Christ is not merely an option, and the church is not simply a brand name. Jesus is the center of life. With him, everything is put together and functions together. Rather than pushing Jesus off to Sunday, He is to become the center of life. His presence is to pulse through the veins of our being. Society demands we leave religion off to the side. It's a personal option according to individual taste. It's nothing to be dragged into the essentials of life. A person can be as serious about it as he wants. He just can't bring it with him when he enters into the public part of life. Faith in Jesus, according to the expectations of the world, is to be left at home or in the chapel and should never peek out of our prayer books. But Pius thought differently. Jesus should be king in all things. There are many examples of what this pope had in mind. The best example, I think, comes from the present pope, when he was still a Jesuit superior living in Argentina. Father Bergoglio was working in the Jesuit house there during the time of the awful crackdown by the ruling generals in Argentina against those who opposed their regime. Their security forces were kidnapping and torturing people and secretly killing them by the thousands. It was a tough time to be opposed to the junta who ran the country, and it was especially a tough time to be connected to the political parties that they didn't agree with. In the course of this time, the Jesuits were helping people on the hit list of the army to get out of the country. They used their contacts around Latin America and in Europe to smuggle people across the border and to help them to stay away from the torture chambers and the execution squads. One of the people who needed help was a legislator who had been named on a death list as someone who is to be arrested and then shot because she belonged to the Communist Party. And she happened to be famous in her, in her opposition to the church. In fact, she hated the church. When Father Bergoglio let her know he could get her out of the country, she yelled at him and told him she'd rather be killed by the army than to allow the church to help her. The church, she said, was corrupt and inept and uncaring and heavy-handed and anti-human and on and on in her estimation. Father Bergoglio met with her and she simply got up and left. But he called her several more times and pleaded with her to take advantage of his offer to leave. Go to Paraguay and to safety, he told her, 
You can hate the church from there. She did leave, and her life was saved. Christ is the king of all things. He's not to be left behind the walls of political boundaries and separated by shifting opinions. So we are to find him and exercise his teaching in every part of life and in each part of being together, even among people who hate us, just as we would know the kingship of our sovereign in every part of our national life together. Father Bergoglio was pronouncing that Christ was king even in the life of this woman whose hatred of the church was so incandescent she'd allowed herself to be burned up in it. I'm sure the Jesuit superior would have said, Viva Cristo Rey, when she finally got into the car to be driven over the border. It was the right thing to do because it was serving the presence of Christ there. That's what we are to do. Christ is the king everywhere and in every part of what we do. Our politics should reflect God's initiative of hope and forgiveness. And our day-to-day living should indicate that we have been entrusted with the goods of the world for the good of the world. Our conduct in our families, at our jobs, in traffic, should revolve around forgiveness and forbearance. And our pathway through the intricacies of life should be our stairway to heaven. We serve Christ the King because in every way and in every part of life, he's held as present by us and we are held together in him. We don't live in the age of kings, but we do live amid the promise that all of life belongs to us individually and collectively. Slowly, we are reclaiming the truth that we're in this project of living together. And we're held together because we are directly, because we are directed toward the same identity and are subject to the same promise. This is the promise of great and ultimate invitation to know Jesus as the center of life and the purpose of living. And when we do, that's when when Jesus becomes Christ the King. Back in just a moment. final segment, Faith in Verse, we have a poem today called, Do You Remember? Do you remember the first time you saw a man holding a sign, staring at the faces behind the windshields of oncoming traffic at the off-ramp of the overpass? We'll work for food, it read. It was shocking, a novelty. Everyone spoke of it, something from the bizarre past, the reprise of a different age when Sandtown was on the map and gypsies were about. It was something old and rusty, oiled and scraped new, back, begging for food. I remembered and wondered, would he work for food? Or was this a a what, a new marketing campaign? Do you remember the first time you saw a tent pitched under a bridge or at the overpass, limp against the wind and rain, a brief home for the homeless, a tarp and rope, blunt weapons to battle the elements? I remember when they were unknown. No one imagined those needs and no one sought solutions. At what station have we pulled into? Will we pull out again? I don't remember when we arrived. That's, do you remember?
next week, we look forward to the beginning of the liturgical year uh, with the first Sunday of Advent. Hope everyone has a chance to uh, begin to turn toward this new opportunity to renew our lives in Christ. That is, after all, what we are given. Hope that in the weeks to come, you can join us. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.